From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. He's strong, he's committed, he's smart. And if he is confirmed by the Senate, Jay will put his considerable talents and experience to work leading our nation's independent central bank, which has the critical responsibility to set monetary policy and monitor our banking system as a whole. That was President Donald Trump last week introducing Jerome Powell, also known as Jay, as his nominee for chairman of the Federal Reserve, America's central bank. Now, as qualified as Mr. Powell is, what Trump didn't talk about is just why he needed to replace Janet Yellen, whom Trump also described in the same event as having done a, quote, terrific job. Surprise, it's really a political decision, replacing a Democrat with a Republican, and one that could have major ramifications, not just for the United States, but the entire world. Welcome to Benchmark. I'm Scott Landman, an economics editor with Bloomberg in Washington. Dan Moss is off this week, but joining me as a guest co-host is my colleague, Chris Condon, who covers the Fed for Bloomberg. Chris, thanks for joining us today. Very happy to be here, Scott. Now, before we bring in our guest, I want to ask you a question, Chris. What makes this appointment for Fed chairman different from others in the past 40 years? Well, really, the first thing that jumps out is that Trump has thrown out this tradition of renominating Fed chairs after they've had only one term, if they've been reasonably successful. That was the case with his immediate predecessors to Janet Yellen. Ben Bernanke got a couple terms, even though he was first nominated by a Republican. Obama then renominated him. Greenspan also had several terms. So that's the first thing that, that really jumps out. Trump. Uh, perhaps not surprisingly, has thrown out a bit of Washington tradition here. All right. Well, we're definitely going to hit on that with our guest and, and talk a little bit more about how this could alter the course of the Fed and the global economy. Uh, Peter Conti Brown is Assistant Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. But more relevant for us, one of his key research areas is the history of the Fed and how it operates. He's the author of the book, The Power and Independence of the Federal Reserve, and he's speaking with us from Philadelphia today. Peter, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Peter, let's talk about what Chris was mentioning a little more. This is the first time a Fed chair whose performance wasn't questioned hasn't been renominated, or at least the first time in recent history. Janet Yellen's performance, you know, it wasn't like they had to force her out. What does this all mean? Well, I would say it's a starker example of partisanship at the Fed. Beginning in the 1950s, when Dwight Eisenhower renominated Harry Truman's pick for the Fed chair, that's William McChesney Martin, we've had a near constant uh, norm and understanding 
that the president will look at the Fed and tread lightly from a partisan perspective. And the only exception to that was when we had Arthur Burns, who was a Republican, uh, who was a close confidant of Richard Nixon, in the near-immediate aftermath of Watergate. Jimmy Carter did decide to go with a Democrat uh, rather than renominating him. But even Burns served two full terms, right? So the fact that Janet Yellen with the best uh, top-line numbers of any Fed chair, by that I mean lowest unemployment, lowest inflation, only served one term, it is pretty staggering. This is, a, this is a new, unprecedented move that President Trump made. Now, even though Mr. Powell himself is not considered a dangerous pick, he was probably regarded as the safest of the people who were candidates to replace Janet Yellen. I hear you kind of saying that this is a gamble, historically speaking, for the president. Would you put it that way? I, I don't know how much of a gamble it is from his perspective. It certainly is from from uh, an external perspective. His, his perspective is, is pretty consistent. President Trump is not one to make much of the norms and traditions of Washington politics. And this, this idea of cross-partisan reappointment of a Fed chair is certainly one of those norms. So I'm not sure how much this idea that he's breaking the mold counts against his decision. Indeed, it might have pushed him toward uh, nominating someone other than Janet Yellen. But for the future, this norm, it will be much easier to break than it will be to restore. And that does make me nervous. Peter, let me ask you something else about Jay Powell. He's a bit of a known quantity in the sense that he's been at the Fed already for over five years. And you're a historian of the Fed, as we've said. If you look back at the sort of pantheon of Fed chairs, wh where does he fit in or how does he stack up, at least in terms of when they're incoming as Fed chairs? You know, it's, it, it depends on how we characterize those Fed chairs. If we look at who they were when they were appointed, I think Jay Powell stacks up very nicely. His credentials don't look terribly different from those of, for example, Alan Greenspan or Paul Volcker. Uh, or, or Mariner Eccles, to name three Fed chairs who, from a monetary policy perspective, have been widely regarded as very good ones. You know, Alan Greenspan is sometimes seen as this uh, economist par excellence. But in reality, he wasn't really an academic economist. His PhD was essentially an honorary degree. He received it uh, in his late, uh, late years, in his 50s, decades after he'd been enrolled at, uh, at NYU. His dissertation disappeared for decades, actually, until Sebastian Malaby found it again. And it ended up being just a collection of papers that they had stapled together and said, hey, please give me a PhD in response to this. Uh, so the idea that only a PhD economist can be a Fed chair successful and is false. And Jay Powell, as you said, five years as a central banker, many years working in private equity, working on the investment side, working on the policy side as a lawyer. This is a pretty sturdy uh, basis uh, of expertise compared to at least some of them. Now, that said, there are other Fed chairs who at the time of their appointment also look like Jay Powell. Uh, probably most is the other lawyer. That's Bill Miller. That was Jimmy Carter's first appointment. And he's regarded as one of the least successful Fed chairs in history. So it's an open road ahead for Jay Powell. I'm not sure how he'll, how he'll do. Uh, he's got uh, history on his side for either being a great Fed chair uh, or a mediocre one. And Bill Miller only lasted about a year or so, as uh, the historical record shows. Peter, I wanted to step back and take a broader historical look at the Fed. You know, you can talk about Greenspan's credentials, but it seems like he, he really did 
shape the perception of the Fed in the financial world, in popular culture, too. When the Fed was created a century ago, did people back then have an inkling of the kind of power it would command today, not just over the U.S. economy, but over the whole world? And, and, and how does that kind of shape the appointment process today? You know, that's a, that's a really kind of deep historical question because a lot of people had different ideas about what it was they were creating uh, in, in 1913. Some called it the Supreme Court of Finance. So they had very vaunted ambitions for what the Fed could become. It was designed self-consciously to insert the U.S. economy, which by then was already extraordinarily large, into the international financial system to create New York as a rival to London as a, as a financial center. Same time, right after the Fed is created, kind of call it the Rodney Dangerfield of federal agencies. They could get, they just couldn't get any respect. There was a great instance where there was a question of a state dinner and where would the Fed, what we now call the Fed governor, sit at the state dinner. And uh, the answer was, well, in order of creation of the independent agencies that put them way down at the bottom of the list. And that really rankled uh, the Fed, uh, but seemed natural for everybody else. So it was more of a backwater uh, technical agency, not at the core of the exercise of American power. That took a century to change and shape to be where it is today. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Peter, a bit different question for you now. There's been this point of debate regarding the Fed. It actually goes back many years, but got really hot since the financial crisis about how much discretion should policymakers have in setting policy. And of course, as you know, Republican lawmakers leveled a lot of criticism at Ben Bernanke and Janet Yellen for using too much discretion. Now that we have a Republican appointed or will have presumably a Republican appointed Fed chair. Do you think those criticisms are going to kind of fade? In other words, was it most recently very partisan motivated, those, those criticisms? Or do you think those will continue as a big point of philosophical debate? We're getting to the guts of monetary history with these questions. This is great. Rule-based monetary policy is as old as money, right? The, the gold standard is a rule-based system. In medieval Korea, it was a rice-based currency. Uh, 19th, 20th century Japan, we had a silk-based currency. The entire idea is just some sort of mechanism to discipline the provider of this stuff, this money, so that they don't go hog wild and rip everybody off by creating more than a value could support. And that's the entire idea behind rules-based monetary policy. Discretion, uh, central bankers with discretion will exercise it, the idea goes, in ways that will favor their political patrons. And so there's a foundational critique 
that has existed pretty consistently, uh, that fired the imagination of Andrew Jackson, uh, created for us the allegory of the Wizard of Oz as as an argument about rules and discretion. And so I don't think that debate is going anywhere. We've never had a world where we haven't been talking about what our money is and who gets to decide. But, Chris, you make a very good point about, well, what's the partisan flavor of this? And I think that there are true believers who doesn't matter who is in office, who's at the central bank, uh, who will always be raising these questions about the hardness of our currency. And they'll keep on making those noises. The question is, who will join that coalition to amplify that critique? And there I'd, I'd agree with at least what's implicit in the question, which is uh, amplifying that critique over during the Obama administration was an antipathy for Barack Obama and the perceived ways that the Fed was supporting his economic program. Now that those partisan hats have switched, I think there are some people who are part of that critical coalition who aren't going to care that much anymore and indeed are going to take the other side because they see it as advantageous to their partisan interests. Uh, So I would expect we'll still hear that critique, but not nearly as loudly as we've heard it before. Peter, we're recording this now just a couple hours after the Federal Reserve Bank of New York announced the retirement of its president, William Dudley, in the middle of next year. Now, he was a former economist at Goldman Sachs when he became president of the New York Fed in 2009. I believe part of that appointment kind of sparked anger, especially on the liberal and the Democratic side, that you know, that that Goldman Sachs was getting too much power. And actually, in the Dodd-Frank law, they were considering making the New York Fed a political appointment subject to Senate confirmation. They decided against that in the end and ended up stripping out bankers' power across the 12 regional Fed banks to, to have a say in appointing the president of each reserve bank. But essentially, it sort of goes back to some of this anger over Dudley, the New York Fed, and Goldman Sachs being part of the issue. There were other things involved. So I I want to ask you how that debate will help shape the appointment of a successor at the New York Fed in the coming months. It's hard to say. The process of appointing reserve bank presidents is so opaque, and Chris is is a real national expert on this, that we have no idea what goes into uh, these discussions. We don't get to participate them in the in the public. It's entirely up to the Reserve Bank itself to determine how much public input, how much transparency, or as is most often the case, how much nothing of either of these they'll they'll have as part of it. Bill Dudley had spent about two years before his appointment in 2009 as a New York Fed employee. Now, he was in charge of, uh, of asset purchases at the New York Fed, which is an incredibly significant position within the system. But in 2009, something else was happening here, which is, of course, we're at the guts of the, of the crisis response. And the seeming inextricable connection between the New York Fed and the banks that it supervises were really on the front pages. You know, we had Jamie Dimon was, uh, was on the board uh, of the New York Fed getting access to the f- New York Fed's thinking at the height of the crisis. Uh, there were others who were still being paid by, by Goldman Sachs. They'd get ethical waivers. It was just a mess, and uh, a mess that fed uh, hostility on the left and the right. So if I were a member of the board of directors of the New York Fed, which is something that I will probably never be, I would be really uh, mindful of the political consequences of continuing down this road of 
opacity and secrecy on this uh, on this key appointment process. And I would not go back to the the Goldman Sachs well um, as they've done so many times before. So, Peter, that leads nicely into a question that delves into the structure of the U.S. central bank. It really is, in the universe of central banks, I have to say, a strange bird. It's not only decentralized, but it also has this half-public, half-private legal foundation, the, the regional feds being actual private corporations. And that's led occasionally to calls for reforms or restructuring of the Fed. Do you think, first of all, in your mind, is the Fed ripe for some sort of review or restructuring? Um, and if so, do you think Jay Powell is a character who's going to want to investigate that, or is he going to simply defend the status quo? So you're, you're asking two questions. Is it ripe for review, and is it ripe for restructuring? And I would say an emphatic yes on the first, and the second is trickier. A predecessor bill to what uh, we're calling the, the Choice Act, which was the Choice Act comes from the House Republicans. It's about remaking uh, Dodd-Frank, repealing major provisions, reorienting others. Um, but a predecessor bill to this is the Shelby bill uh, that came out of the Senate Banking Committee uh, a couple of years ago. And, and in both bills is a proposal for a new National Monetary Commission, which is essentially to review top to bottom, everything about the Federal Reserve. Some versions of the bill have excluded the question of the Reserve Bank's vitality, which I think would be a gross error. Uh, and so I think that review would be incredibly healthy. Uh, the structure that you described, and gainly as it is, uh, uh, was done to fit a political logic of 1912 and 13. And that political logic barely made economic sense even then. And the political logic today would be very different. The idea that we'd only have, for example, one reserve bank west of Dallas and San Francisco treating economies as diverse as Northern California and uh, Alaska and Salt Lake City, Utah, that's, that's illogical. The idea that we'd have two in the, st the great state of Missouri, with all respect to the Missourians who are, are listening, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't make any sense why we'd have that. The other idea, though, that you're getting at, Chris, is that we would have private bankers, or at least those who are uh, appointed in part by private bankers, sitting in these seats of power, exercising some of the most important control over the national economy, but without any kind of political input. That made sense when our central banking model was the, was the private bank of England, which is kind of the 19th century banking model, central banking model. But in the 20th, 21st century, we've seen an incredible evolution to the central banks that we see today which are decidedly public, which are exercising uh, public duties. And the idea that we'd have private bankers doing that work at least needs to be reevaluated. Peter, one last question before we wrap up. And this could also touch on how the entire Federal Reserve System could potentially be obliterated. There's been a rise of Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies. How do you see that playing out with respect to Federal Reserve and central banking in general? Are we going to be here 20 years from now and, you know, whatever the Fed has become will just be totally different or a non-issue? What's your sense of that? Have either of you ever used cryptocurrency? <laughs> not me personally. <laughs> I have not. Yeah. yeah. A lot of people have, but they tend to be enthusiasts, right? Not those who are seeking to simplify their monetary life. The technology of money, which is very old, has always got to have 
three features to it. It's got to be a, me a medium of exchange, meaning you find other people who are eager to use this intermediary to solve your transaction. It's got to have a store of value. So you don't want something that's going to be whipsawing in value because you're putting your surplus into this thing so that you can pick it up again later. And it's got to be a unit of account so you can quote things in this cryptocurrency and people will understand, oh, yeah, one bottle of water equals this many iPhones, and I can make that comparison because it's priced in the same way. I'm not a bull on cryptocurrency because other than the enthusiasts who'd love to see, you know, the power of central banks or whatever torn down, or frankly, money launderers and uh, and black marketeers uh, who like uh, what the, the technology of cryptocurrency can offer. Uh, other than that, I'm just not seeing a lot of demand from people on the street saying, the money that I'm currently using is technologically defective in a way that I can readily understand. And until you get there, until you get to the point where people are deeply unhappy with the money that the government is presenting to them, then I don't see what cryptocurrency is doing, other than being a kind of a playhouse for people to speculate and, uh, and think through the intellectual puzzles of, uh, of, of money. So put me as a, a central banking bull and a, and a cryptocurrency bear. All right, Peter. Well, we'll come back to you on the Benchmark Bitcoin podcast in 2038 and see how those <laughs> comments hold up in 20 years. But uh, Peter Conti-Brown, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. It was a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Benchmark will be back next week. And until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, our Bloomberg app, as well as on Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. While you're there, take a minute to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us and let us know what you thought of the show. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Scott Landman. Chris, you are at? At Chris J. Condon. And Peter, you are at? Peter Conti Brown. Benchmark is produced by Sarah Patterson and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.